my PhD came from the school of hard knocks. That's how I learned everything. I think if I would have had a coach or a mentor or somebody that had been through some of this stuff before, you know, I could have leaned on them and they would have said, don't do that stupid stuff, you know, and, and maybe I would have saved myself a few million dollars, uh, but it didn't work out that way. So now I have a multi-million dollar college tuition for this PhD from the school of hard knocks. And, um, you know, it, it probably slowed me down by about 10 years. I'll never forget that day when I asked myself the question, is this it? Is this all there is to strive for in life? That day, I set out on a journey to find more. Now, I am sitting down with the most fulfilled to teach us the tools and tips they use to get there so we can do it faster. Think different, earn different, live fulfilled. This is Contrarian Cashflow. Welcome back, Contrarian Cashflow. I've got Brian Burke with me today. Brian, how are you doing, man? I'm doing great, John. How are you? I am doing outstanding. I'm super excited to have you here. So Brian is president and CEO of Praxis Capital, a real estate private equity firm focusing primarily on the Southeast and the South, flipped over hundreds of homes, former police officer, author of an outstanding book and a big contributor on Bigger Pockets. actually, ironically, answered a question of mine yesterday. So Brian, what are you and the folks over at Praxis working on right now? Well, we, uh, we're in the midst of fundraising on our uh, uh, multifamily value fund six. And uh, this was uh, a $50 million fund. We started out as a $25 million fund, but we raised the $25 million in like three weeks. And we had uh, options to double that and go up to 50. So we decided that we would do that. And we're, uh, we're closing in on 50 million now with a little bit of space left. But uh, that's pretty exciting to be able to fill that up so quickly. Well, and you have a couple properties that I think you just closed on one. And then I think you just got one under contract recently. You've done your homework. Yeah, we, uh, we, we absolutely did. We closed on one just about uh, a month ago in Florida and we have another property in contract in Tucson, Arizona, and uh, we're, we're looking for more. We're, uh, we have enough capacity to take down somewhere between uh, four and 10 properties in this fund, depending upon how much institutional uh, joint venture equity we receive. And It'll be a great diversified portfolio for our investors, and we're really excited about it. Well, I actually sat in on uh, the the webinar for the fund, and uh, I'm from Tucson originally, or I grew up there at least, and so that that number from RealPage, the the rent growth data for 2023, 2020, or 2022, 2023, really just stuck out at me. And so uh, I, I know Tucson's an outstanding market, like you talked about in Southern Florida. So excited to see uh, how those properties perform and what you guys do to turn them around. Yeah, you know we're we're looking to buy properties in strong markets across the country. That's what's most important to us is being in strong markets. You know, people ask me oftentimes, you know, like, what's the best defense? And, you know, in the face of all this economic uncertainty, and I always say, you know, the the best defense is to buy where people are moving to, because those tailwinds are going to push you. Headwinds will do nothing but, you know, dog you, right? But a tailwind will push you. And uh, that's what we're finding in uh, in strong markets like this. And it's interesting because the rent growth in Tucson, the forecasted future rent growth in Tucson and Phoenix are the top of the country. And then there's everybody else. And there's a big gap in between them. I mean, there's a, a massive uh, space between Tucson slash Phoenix and the rest of the country. It's really interesting to see. Well, so I know you're a big data guy. So I guess you, you, you touched on it, but so what, where are those demographics coming from? And what do you think is the causation for that growth, especially, you know, primarily within Arizona? Uh, well, uh, where we're getting the data, if that's part of your question, and I'll, I'll answer it from a bunch of different angles. So where we get our data is from Axiometrics, Reese, CoStar, uh, all the paid services. It's expensive data, but it's really good and helpful data. Uh, but where what's driving the data is really, you know, an important thing. And uh, my observation is, and I've been saying this for a while, and I think I'm being proven right. We'll see. Uh, people from California are leaving uh, this state uh, in record numbers uh, for a variety of reasons, whether it's high taxes, crime, political climate, you name it, whatever it is, people are leaving California and they're moving to places like Phoenix, Tucson, Las Vegas, Boise, Idaho, Portland, Oregon, a variety of surrounding states. Those states are becoming the benefactor of this population exodus, many of whom have a lot of money to spend, either because they have high incomes working for a, a, a large company or maybe tech guys and that sort of stuff that can work from home 
and bring that California income to those other states that have a lower cost of living, or they're equity refugees where they're selling their $2 million bungalow in Palo Alto, uh, and they're moving into a you know, 5,000 square foot uh, you know, house in Las Vegas for half the price. Uh, whichever category they fit in, their economic power is undeniable. Uh, you also have markets like Tampa, Florida, Atlanta, Georgia, Raleigh, Cary, North Carolina, Nashville, Tennessee, places like that that are the benefactor of New York uh, residents fleeing for similar reasons in similar positions, creating a similar economic dynamic. And so the southeastern U.S. and the southwestern U.S. outside of California are really compelling places to be buying real estate right now. Well, and you know, a lot of those things are being expedited by the current circumstances, right? You know, especially with this work from home and people are having a little bit more flexibility in where they can work, you know, throughout this, the country. So if you don't have to live in Manhattan and go to the office every day, you know, why not go to Vegas or, or, or Phoenix and get a little bit warmer weather, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, not only uh, can you uh, work from home, but you can keep your same income, or maybe you take a small haircut uh, because of a cost of living adjustment. But, you know, it used to be if you're going to relocate like that, you got to find a new job. And now if you can bring your job with you, you can go anywhere. And it's, it's really unfortunate for states like New York and California who have modeled their whole economic story around high taxation uh, because they felt as though they lived in a bubble. And, you know, nobody can go anywhere. There's nothing you can do about it. And, you know, I've been, I've been investing out of state for a long, long time. And, you know, I, I've been saying this forever is money is portable. And, you know, people can choose where to put their money and where to invest their money. So um, these states that uh, have been getting away with it for a long time may start to see that model uh, fail to perform for them in the future. I'll be very curious to see how it all plays out. The next couple of years will be very interesting economically. And obviously, you know, real estate will play a big part in that. So, well, before we get too into the weeds, I do really want to uh, promote. So Brian has an outstanding publication that he had come out earlier this year, uh, The Hands-Off Investor. And I would recommend any of the listeners out there to go pick up a copy. The best place is either Bigger Pockets. I know it's on Amazon as well, but it's been a tremendous resource for me. And I just want to make sure that we get that out there early so folks can go out and pick up their copy. And I just think it's outstanding for anybody that's looking at potentially passive investing in a syndication deal, or even anybody looking to be on the operator or sponsor side as well. It's just the due diligence lists and, and all the questions you have in there are tremendous. So I just wanted to thank you for that and, uh, you know, tell anybody go out there and pick up your copy. Well, I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, if we're, if we're doing shameless plugs and the, the one I can give is if you buy it from biggerpockets.com forward slash syndication book, from there, you can get some bonus content offered by the publisher that includes a couple of interviews I did with passive investors to learn how they think, as well as a, a comprehensive list of questions uh, that you can ask sponsors before you make your passive investment with them. Although uh, we were saying we were discussing a little bit about this before the show, John, and you know, I, I don't think that you should have to answer any of the or ask any of the questions on my question list if the sponsor you're considering investing with is worth your investment, your questions should almost all be answered just in the offering materials that they've presented you. Uh, so you should be able to gather the answers rather than having to ask for the answers, we would hope. Well, and I don't think it's too shameless of a plug with uh, the educational value that folks are going to get out of it. So um, awesome. Well, let's, let's get rolling into it. So you know, I've heard, obviously you talk plenty of times. We know a lot about, you know, Praxis, what you guys are doing right now. I wanted to dig in kind of the front end of the journey and the story, right? I mean, I think your background is extremely interesting. So, you know, why, why even real estate, right? I mean, how'd you even get involved in this in the first place? Well, it's kind of a, a weird convoluted story. I got started investing in real estate uh, shortly after I got out of high school. You know, I thought that I was going to be an airline pilot. And so I started taking flying lessons while I was in high school, got my private pilot's license, started out at the junior college, taking all the commercial pilot uh, courses and did all the ground school and took all the tests. And then I realized, wait a minute, for me to get the flight hours needed to get my commercial and airline transport pilot's license, it's going to cost me like $35,000. And I'm like, I don't have any money. <laughs> so I can't be an airline pilot because I, I don't have the money. And even if I did, you know, I'd spend $35,000 to get a license that gets me a $25,000 a year job when you start out. You know? <laughs> so that, the numbers didn't really, uh, didn't really add up. So I started thinking of other ways I could make money and I started selling these books like through this dropship thing. This was before there was an internet. This was back when you had to mail stuff to people and they'd mail stuff back. 
So we would mail out all these ads for these books, then people would mail in their orders, and then I would have the order drop shipped to them. Well, I got copies of all the books before I started this little uh, measly venture. And one of the books in in this collection was a a book on investing in real estate. It was probably the worst real estate book ever written, uh, which is why it was part of this program. But nevertheless, I went ahead and read it anyway and thought, well, that's interesting. This book says that I can buy real estate with no money down. It says I can do it with other people's money. It says I don't need to know anything. Uh, This is perfect for me because I don't have any money. I don't know anything and I don't know anyone. Uh, so I'm going to go out and do this real estate thing. And so that's what I set out to do. And uh, my first house I bought, I bought a rental house with no money down. I, I, uh, I had the seller carry back the entire down payment. I, I had a lender lend 20-year-old me uh, like 80% of the purchase price. And then the seller uh, lent 20-year-old me the other 20%. Uh, that I needed. And I thought, wow, that was easy. Just like the book said, you ask them if they'll carry back a down payment, they say yes, and you own the real estate for no money down. It wasn't until, you know, about four or five years later that I realized that that almost never happens. And it's not even close to being that easy. Uh, But you know, when you're young and dumb and don't know any better, uh, you just try it. And sometimes it works. Yeah, no, I didn't know about those books. So I guess that's where you got the the selling and, uh, you know, the, the skills of working with customers and things like that from the beginning. Oh, I wouldn't say I had any skill at all. I think we probably sold like 10 books. I mean, it was, a, <laughs> it was a ridiculous little venture. And, you know, I would say it was a total waste of time. It wasn't for the fact that maybe that was the spark that got me into doing what I do now. And I mean, if you would have told me back then, like, you know, hey, you know, by the time you're 50 years old, you will have bought a half a billion dollars worth of real estate. I would have said like, you're absolutely out of your mind. There's no way I have not, I have nothing to my name right now. There's no way that's going to happen. But guess what? It did. Yeah, no. So, so you bought that first property, right? So did you get the bug from there? You said, hey, you know, let's keep this going. Like, so what made you continue on down the real estate path after getting that first property? And what was the progression like? Yeah, it was a horrible experience. You know, I had a really bad tenant experience. I, I, I didn't get paid. I had to kick somebody out. I lost money on the deal. And it was like, all right, I'm hooked. You know, this, is, this real estate <laughs> thing is great. So I did it again and then I did it again. And, you know, and, uh, you know, the first like two or three deals, I, I think I was still not even ahead. You know, I was losing, I, I, you know, if I made any money at all, it just covered costs that I had to have to even do the business. I had to buy a computer and a printer, you know, okay, well, there's 1500 bucks. So then I make 1500 bucks on a house and it's like, you know, I'm up to even. So it was a, it was a real struggle. And there were a lot of times where I thought, you know, why am I even doing this? I should just give up. There were times when my wife was like, you're just spending money, you know, you're wasting money on these computers and all this stuff. And we're not, this is dumb. And why are you even doing this? And I'm like, well, I don't know. I think this is going to work one day. And, you know, I, at that point I didn't know how to do anything else. I mean, I was, uh, I finally, I, I got a, I got a job in law enforcement and, you know, that was paying the bills. It had vacation time and a government pension and health benefits and all that kind of stuff. So like my bills and stuff were covered. So I thought, you know, I can do this on the side and maybe something will come of it and and maybe it won't. And it did. Yeah. So, so you talked about, you know, going to the force and so you're, you're doing that job and then I know you've been doing a lot of flips since then. So was it more flips or rentals or what kind of was the business model when you were first getting off the ground? Yeah, it was really flips because I didn't have the money to to hold anything really. You know, I had that one experiment and that didn't go so well. So then I decided like, well, instead of this renting thing, maybe I can flip. So so my next project was to start flipping houses. And I read somewhere that if you find an owner in foreclosure, you could just give them a little bit of cash for them to sign over the deed and take the property subject to the existing loan. So we found a house that was in foreclosure, sent out, you know, a bunch of houses actually, sent a bunch of postcards or whatever. One lady called and she's like, yeah, my house in foreclosure. I'm like, well, you know, we could buy it and, you know, go down there. I think I was like, I don't know, 23 or something. I looked like I was 15 and, you know, and, and I go in there, I'm like, yeah, you know, we can solve all your problems and, you know, I can give you $1,500. You sign over the deed. I'll make up all the back payments. We'll fix up the house. Then we'll resell it. And, you know, and all that, it'll save your credit and blah, blah, blah. All the stuff that the book said to say, and uh, that's exactly what I did. You know, I gave her 1500 bucks. She signed over a deed. It was kind of crazy. Here we are at like a like a, it wasn't a UPS store, but it was like one of those like mailboxes kind of places with a notary. And of course, you know, the lady doesn't even have any identification. So we had to get like two people to vouch for who she is. And so she found two homeless people that she knew. And it's like, so here I am in like this mailbox place with, you know, two homeless people, this one lady that's like half cracked out 
uh, I'm signing over a deed for a house. And I'm thinking like, this is just ridiculous. What am I even doing here? But, uh, but it all worked out. She got her 1500 bucks and you know, we, uh, I made up all the back payments on the house by cash advancing all my credit cards. Uh, and, uh, and that probably helped her credit out. And then we used more credit cards to fix up the house, fix it up, resold it. And I think I made like thousand dollars. I mean, it was ridiculous. Uh, but, it was a great experience uh, to try it out. I realized I never again wanted to buy another house from a homeowner because the experience was just like the craziest thing ever. And, and plus I wasn't very good at, you know, at selling and I wasn't very good at like, I'd send out postcards and, you know, nobody would call and, you know, I didn't know how to do any of that stuff. So I decided that that wasn't for me anymore. I needed to shift course. Well, so one, one of the points you talked about there was about, you know, the amount of risk or financial risk you were taking on, right? I mean, maxing out your credit card, you already talked a little bit about your wife. So what was the relationship like? And I mean, you know, how did you handle that? I mean, that's, you know, if you're maxing out all your credit cards and you're getting a thousand bucks back in return, I mean, that's risk reward, you know, did the sensors go off in your head saying, Hey, you know, is this, is this still the right thing to be doing? Oh, well, you know, I mean, you got to spend half your paycheck on a shrink and all that kind of stuff just to like <laughs> keep your sanity. But, you know, it was, it was a tough time, I must say. And, you know, but it was interesting because I, I don't know why I was determined to try to find a way to make it work, but I just felt like I wasn't really that good at working for somebody else. I never really enjoyed, you know, working for the man. And in this case, I was in the police department, so I was the man, but there's still a man over the man, you know, and it's like... <laughs> It was just one of those things where I'm like, I don't want to do this forever. And, you know, I, I want to be my own boss and write my own ticket and, and literally not write myself a ticket, but, you know, write my <laughs> own ticket. Uh, and, and also I wanted to have, you know, financial freedom, whatever that was. And, and, and I thought that that was not that difficult to obtain because all the guys on late night TV were on boats with women in bikinis and made it look like that happened to everybody. And it was really easy. So I was allured by all that stuff. It turns out none of that stuff is really real, but you, know, you learn, you live and learn. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, so one of the things that you talked about throughout is just the transparency, right, of, of the risk, of the struggle, of everything. So one of the points I've heard you make before is, you know, it really took close to 10 years with putting money back in your business, like you said, kind of doing these different strategies, flipping houses, taking on this additional risk. So, so what was the timeline in all this? And, you know, when did you kind of get that big break where you're like, okay, this, this turn is turning into something that could be the, my financial freedom. Yeah, you, you said it. it was, the timeline was 10 years. I mean, literally I was, I was at this, you know, beating my head against the wall for 10 years. And it was like, you know, I, every time I thought it was a big break, it was a little break. You know, it's like I, I had uh, one guy that I knew, like I was, was, my first job was in a grocery store, right? And I was a grocery checker. This was before I went to the law enforcement. There was a guy that used to come through my cashier line and, you know, he had a business where he, he was kind of, it was loosely related to construction. And so uh, I, I reached out to him and I'm like, hey, remember me? Oh yeah. You know, and I said, you know, you look older than me and I need somebody that looks older than me to be a partner because nobody will take me seriously. And plus I don't know anything about construction. Would you partner with me on some of these house deals? And so that was literally how I picked my partners back then, you know, and, and uh, we did a couple deals together and I thought that was my big break. And then he had a friend that had some money that invested a few thousand bucks and helped us get a deal. And I thought that was my big break. And, you know, none of it was really that big of a break, but every bit of it was a building block. You know, every house I did was another piece of experience that I could put on my track record, another line on the, you know, on the history of properties that I've purchased, you know, now instead of uh, buying one property, I was up to like five or six and then I got to seven or eight and then I got to nine or 10 and then you get, I have done a dozen flips. I mean, to me, that sounded huge. Like I've flipped a dozen houses. Who does that? I mean, I didn't know a single person in my life that had ever done anything like that. And so uh, at that point I thought, you know, I think I have this kind of figured out. I, by this point I'd done a couple dozen or no, I'd done about a dozen flips. And, and I said, you know, I'm going to like create a business around this. So, you know, there was no such thing as LLCs at the time, or maybe they were just brand new. So I thought, well, the way to do this is you just do a DBA, you know, it's a, a fictitious business name. So I filed a fictitious business name statement at the county. One of the things you have to do is you have to um, uh, publish it in the newspaper three times or maybe it's four, I don't know. So I published the, the uh, fictitious business name and then I get a call from uh, someone who was a friend of a friend that I had only met once uh, that was a private money lender. And I had met her in her office or something and was talking about like, oh yeah, my friend said, you know, private money, this and that. And you know, what's it all about? And she kind of told me a little bit and I'm like, I could never do any of that stuff. 
So, so she calls me and she says, uh, my boss saw your fictitious business name uh, and he asked me to have you come to the office. I'm like, okay. And, you know, this guy was like the biggest investor in the whole county. I mean, like everybody knew him. He was like biggest money guy around and all this stuff. So I go to the office and, you know, he was just really interested in what I was doing with flips. So like maybe he could, you know, do flips for him and he would give me all the money to do it and this and that. And then she tells me, she says, you know, you don't need him. She's like, I can loan you all the money. You don't have to split the profits with him. You can just pay the investors 12%. And, uh, and you know, you don't even have to do that. So I'm like, hmm, that sounds interesting. So I started doing that exactly that. And she was loaning me the money. And, and then, you know, I was, uh, I was started flipping. I was doing like a couple dozen houses like a year. And I thought, well, this, uh, that, that to me was really my quote unquote big break. That's outstanding. Yeah. I didn't, I haven't heard that story before. That's uh, that's outstanding. So did that, is that kind of what got you on the, on the trajectory to the more, the apartment side and bringing on investors? Is, is that kind of, I know you talked about partners before, but is that kind of the, the seed that was planted in your mind about, Hey, you know, if, if I can do this at scale, we can start taking down larger properties. No, I was too dumb for that. I didn't know anything about that stuff. So instead what it did was it got me to understand that there's people out there that have a lot of money uh, that are looking for places to invest. And in this case, these people were investing money in making loans. And so they would loan me the money, I would pay 12% interest. And then, uh, you know, I would flip the house and then they'd get paid off when the house was done. And, and I was starting to notice though that they were making more money than I was. So that was, that was kind of interesting. But nevertheless, uh, you know, it was the tickets to the game, right? So uh, really, it was just a way for me to understand that there was other options out there than just banks. And so my next step was to decide that, you know, if I could create a way to have captive money, that money that I had full control over, I could really expand my business. And I also was at the point where I was doing enough flips now where, you know, the job was kind of getting in the way, you know, even though, you know, I was on swing shift, I was working kind of evenings and weekends, I had the whole business week off, it was just kind of like working 50 to 60 hours a week. And then plus trying to do house flips on the side was just going to be a bit much. And I thought, you know what, this is time for me to hang it up. Uh, so I put in my notice at the department. I'm like, I quit, you know, I got a two weeks notice. And, and I did this little thing where I, I rented out the room of the community center. And I told everybody I work with, I said, look, I'm investing in real estate. It's my new thing, uh, but I need the money to do it. I want to tell all you guys what I'm doing in real estate. And maybe you guys want to invest with me or whatever. I don't even know. So I did this thing, uh, like everybody came from the department and, and I, uh, I told them what I was doing in real estate. I talked about like median house prices and house flips and how it works and profit margins and this and that and showed them like before and after pictures of the houses I'd flip. And, and I said, if any of you guys want to invest with me, this is what I'm doing. I'm going to create a fund. I'm going to split profits 50-50. You put the money in. I'll use that to buy houses. When the house sells, I'll keep half the profits. Half the profits goes to you guys. It's divided up by however much you invest you know, in proportion to the whole total. And I walked out of that room with, you know, 28 investors investing $500,000. My minimum investment was five grand. And, uh, and I had a half a million dollars of investments. Unfortunately, all my investors carried guns. And so, you know, I was thinking like, you know, gosh, if I screw this up, I'm a dead man and, and all that. So that was a little bit, a little bit concerning, but uh, I used that money to go buy flips. I was buying properties on the courthouse steps at foreclosure auctions with discretionary money that I had full control over. And that was really the catalyst that, that launched my business. Number one, it took us from doing like, a, you know, a few houses a year to doing a couple dozen houses a year. And two, it got me into this whole thing of fund management and investors and raising money and all this foreign stuff. And then, you know, my investors were telling friends and the friends were calling like, hey, do you have something I could invest in? And it's like, wow, this is interesting. And that started to happen. It took years. This didn't happen in days, weeks, or months. It took years. But, uh, but nevertheless, I, I figured out that there was a whole business around all of this and somehow managed to make it work. So you're having all the success with flipping. <clears throat> Sounds like you have, you know, decent means to, to do the number of projects that you need to. So when was that aha moment? And when did you start thinking about trying to take down larger opportunities in, in apartments? It kind of happened. Well, it was a two-step process. Number one is I had, uh, when I was doing a lot of uh, flips, I, every once in a while, I'd keep something. Uh, and, you know, I'd have a house like from before I even started the fund, I had a couple houses that I bought that, you know, that I thought, well, you know, hey, I flipped two, I'm going to keep two, you know, so I did a little bit of that. 
And uh, I decided to sell uh, two of the uh, properties that I had and do a 1031 exchange into a multifamily property. Of course, I didn't know anything about multifamily, so I had to get educated on that. But ultimately, I bought a 16-unit apartment complex. And uh, that was like 20 years ago. And that was my entrance into multifamily. I did it all myself using 1031. I didn't raise any money for it. But that got me to learn the multifamily business. And then the next thing that happened was 2006 or seven came along and we had this market peak and then a subsequent market crash. And I mean a cataclysmic bloodbath where real estate fell by 40 to 70% in the areas where I was uh, doing my flips. And so, you know, it's like, I, I kind of saw it coming, so I really scaled back my business. And instead of doing a couple dozen houses a year, literally in 05, 06, I think I did four houses each of those two years. Um, and so it was like, really, it was getting kind of dry. And then all of a sudden, like the fire hose turned on and there was this massive avalanche of foreclosures. And I'm like, oh my gosh. I'm like, first of all, I've got the total system set up for this. I built this like a machine to make this so that you could literally push thousands of properties through this, through this funnel. Uh, but I never used it. You know, I never, I was using it at 5% of its capacity because we had 50 foreclosures a, a month. You know, if we were lucky, you know, now we had 500 a day, you know, so it was just, it was just crazy. So I thought, well, you know, if I want to really seriously take this down first, I got to raise a lot more money. Uh, and second, I'm going to need some partners and we're going to need to build a construction company and do all this stuff. And we did exactly that. I, I, I found a great partner that was a home builder. We kind of retooled his home building business to become a remodeling business. Uh, we took my purchasing engine and coupled that up and we started flipping like 100 houses a year, more, more than 100 houses a year. And we were just pumping them out like a machine. And then, you know, we started buying rentals and we bought like 120 rental houses, you know, in the San Francisco Bay Area, not cheap $20,000 Ohio stuff. Uh, and then, uh, you know, we built up a really nice portfolio there. And it's like, I looked around and I'm like, these foreclosures are going to be gone in like two or three years. There's going to be nothing. We're going to go from like chasing 300 houses a day to like three houses a week. You know, so what are we going to do? You know, we've got, the, we've raised all this money. So uh, decided, hey, wait a minute, that multifamily I bought, you know, what about that? And maybe that's a business. And I had bought a couple more by then. And, you know, I even did a small syndication like in 07 or 08 because I was like, hey, you know, there's nothing to buy in California. Might as well go out of state, right? And so uh, really decided that was time to turn the focus to, uh, to buying large multifamily and raising the money from investors. And, and that's really when we kicked it off into high gear. And so when you started the business, it, was it as integrated? I know you're fully integrated now and I guess, you know, so you have kind of everything, you know, in-house. How did it start out? Did you, were you subbing out a lot of the different duties, you know, be either construction management, property management? What was kind of the, the impetus for the business on the multifamily side starting? Yeah, everything had to go third party. I was the lone ranger. I mean, it was really just me, you know, when I first started, it was literally just me. And then, you know, me and a bookkeeper. And then as the business grew and, you know, we started doing all these flips and we had a little bit of infrastructure, all the infrastructure was local. So that didn't help us when we were going to Texas to buy uh, apartments, for example, and we're here in California. So, uh, you know, I was using third-party property management companies and I'd have those property management companies would manage the renovations and manage the real estate and kind of do all of that stuff and just built some teams, all outside contractors to third parties in those markets. And yeah, it took years before we took everything in-house. Uh, let's see, I started uh, out-of-state multifamily investing about 15 years ago and we've been doing self-management and being and, and we're vertically integrated as of about four years ago, if that gives you any idea. So about 11 years, we did it third party. So one thing I'm curious about is kind of throughout this process, you know, you talked about you're doing the Lone Ranger, you know, and you kind of are doing a lot of this kind of seat of your pants. Did you have advisors or, or you know, how did you, I know, you know, I don't know how big mentorship and coaching and all this stuff was back then. But yeah, who did you really have around you that that kept you on the straight and narrow or on that path to, to success? 
No one, which is probably why, you know, I had some of my own uh, pain points, you know, in 08, I was, or 07, it's like, gosh, how do you make any money these days? So I started branching out into all their kinds of wild things and self-storage and hotels and all development and, you know, housing subdivisions. I mean, I was doing all kinds of stuff, trying to figure out what, you know, how to make money. And a lot of that stuff didn't work out so well for me. And, you know, I lost a lot of money. I, I really thought, you know, I mean, I lost my entire net worth when the market collapsed. And fortunately, you know, I didn't do any of that with investors. I did that all on my own. So all my investor stuff, it was kind of a, a weird dynamic. On one hand, everything I had investors in was doing great and I was making me money. And everything I did on my own, I was losing like, a, you know, like a bucket with a hole in it. So now it's like all the money I would make over here, I'm using to fund all my losses over there. And so again, I'm making nothing. You know, so the first 10 years I made nothing. I didn't know what I was doing. Now I'm in this situation where I'm making nothing because I got this great business making a ton of money. I got my stupid investments that are losing a ton of money. So my net is nothing. So, you know, my PhD came from the school of hard knocks. That's how I learned everything. I think if I would have had a coach or a mentor or somebody that had been through some of this stuff before, you know, I could have leaned on them and they would have said, don't do that stupid stuff, you know, and, and maybe I would have saved myself a few million dollars. Uh, but it didn't work out that way. So now I have a multi-million dollar college tuition for this PhD from the School of Hard Knocks. And, um, you know, it, it probably slowed me down by about 10 years. Uh, so, no, I, I didn't do any of that stuff. I was all self-driven, self-motivated, uh, which, you know, maybe that could be considered a, 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 an interesting or, or nice characteristic, but it's also dangerous. Yeah, well, I mean, I think things ended up working out uh, for the for the best as is, like you said, maybe not uh, as streamlined and as efficient as it could have been. But uh, well, at least it sounds like your tuition's paid off, though, right? You don't yeah, have that hanging over your head. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now I'm now I'm getting out of it, but you know, it's like it it does it hangs on for decades, and so I've always said, like you know. The people ask about risks in real estate investment, you know, like, oh, is it risky to do this or is it risky to do that? And, you know, it's kind of like my feeling on this business is that it's far easier to get into a deal. Like people are like, oh, it's hard to find a deal. It's far easier to get into a deal than it is to get out of one that's a bad deal. Because those bad deals will dog you. You can't get rid of them. Nobody wants to buy them. You're losing money. You're, you're getting desperate. It's, it's a really, really difficult time mentally uh, and financially. And it's something that I don't recommend. But uh, everybody will end up having to go through it at some point in time. Because I can sit here all day long and tell you and your listeners about how uh, you know, don't get into bad deals and don't do this and don't do that. But nobody listens. I mean, ultimately, you're, you're driven by what you think is going to work and you're smarter than that guy and you heard all the failure stories. So you're not going to repeat the mistake, blah, blah, blah. I said all that too. Uh, you're still going to do what you think is right and you won't always be right. And so once in a while, you're going to go through some challenging times and some difficulty. And uh, ultimately, it's a, it's, a, it's a growth opportunity. And, and uh, I wouldn't be where I am today or who I am today if I didn't go through those challenges. I really appreciate you sharing that. And I mean, I just love that last quote when you're talking about it. it's a lot easier to get into a deal than it is to get out of a bad deal. And I just think that's kind of a lot of the risk factors that I'm seeing right now in the market is regardless if you want to say things are overpriced or however you want to deem them, you know, assets are expensive right now across the board. It doesn't matter. You know, I was having this conversation with somebody the other day, you know, even artwork, you know, luxury automobiles, you know, kind of these, you know, these unique things, baseball cards, it just seems like everything is, is kind of at the top equities, of course, are at the top of the market. And so I think that's just, there's less risk room, there's less margin for error right now, right? So if you don't, if that deal doesn't run and you don't get it running like a drum and you don't have it sorted out and something happens and, you know, these, unfortunately, these assumptions that we're all making that, you know, no matter what deal you buy, you've got to make some assumptions. But if those turn a little bit, you know, maybe 10, 20% further than you thought, you know, that's when the, the pain can really set in and happen. So I, I really appreciate you sharing that. You could have bought just about anything in 2010 and right now look like you're brilliant. You really could have. Even the worst deal, you could look brilliant. But could you do that now and in 10 years say the same thing? The jury is out on that. Absolutely. I wish we could tell the future. That would be nice, right? What are interest rates going to be like? What are cap rates going to look like? <laughs> Wouldn't it? 
<laughs> well, so I want to dig in on the book a little bit. So I know you've, you've been a big contributor on Bigger Pockets for some time now. Um, so why'd you even start down that path? I mean, you know, you're kind of in your zone, you're, you're crushing it, you're taking down large multifamily properties. Like, you know, why'd you even start down the path of becoming a, a really heavy contributor on the site? Well, it actually uh, happened before all of that. You know, when, uh, when I first started contributing, it was about seven years ago. So that would have been like 2013 or so. And at that point, our flipping business was like all, you know, on fire. I mean, we were doing hundreds of houses and all this stuff. We built this great rental portfolio. And I, I don't know, one night it was really weird. I just felt like I'm like, I've got all this experience now that I've gained. You know, people have always told me for years like, oh, you, you know, you're in real estate. You should write a book. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, what do I, I don't know anything. You know, I've only done 100 deals or I've only done 200 deals. I don't know enough to write a book, you know. So I'm like, that's ridiculous. But at one time it just struck me. I thought, you know, I at least have something to offer. So I heard about the site. I don't even know where. I just went to the site, signed up for an account. I did my little welcome, here I, who, here's who I am post. And then I just started watching as posts came up. And I saw posts coming up and I just started answering people's questions and I became more and more and more well-known. Well, you know, 2013 was right around the time when, you know, our business was like on all cylinders, but uh, the foreclosures were starting to decline. There was, there were fewer foreclosures. There was less opportunity. We knew we were making this shift into multifamily, but you know, we hadn't really grown it to a large scale yet. So I don't know. I was just looking for something to do and started answering questions. Well, then what I started seeing was people were contacting me to say like, Hey, you know, I saw what you wrote about this question and you, that was a really smart answer. And do you take investors? And it's like, yeah. <laughs> and I started noticing that more and more and more, which I thought, well, that's really interesting. I'm actually getting investors from just posting answers to people and just helping people. So that was my first clue uh, that, that this was uh, probably an interesting strategy to, to really uh, spend some time on. And I literally, I would come home from the office every night after working all day in the office, I'd go home, I'd take my iPad out. And as we're sitting there just watching TV after dinner, I'd scroll through every post that was made on the site. And this was back when, you know, they were like, we got a hundred thousand members. And it's like, that was a big, <laughs> a big deal. So there wasn't a lot of posts. I could get through a whole 24 hours of posts in about 20 minutes and see all the ones. And I would, I would open a new tab for every question I wanted to answer. And then I'd go and I'd answer them all and just close the tabs as I finished. That's how I did it. And you know, now you can't do that anymore. There's so many, it would take me all day to get through a day's post now. So, uh, so I, I just did that. And then all of a sudden I get a call from Brandon, uh, Brandon Turner at bigger pockets. And he says, Hey, uh, Josh and I are going to start up this podcast. Would you be on it? And I'm like, what's a podcast? And he goes, oh, it's a thing where we just interview people. I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever. I'll do it. So I was on podcast number three, the third one that they ever did. And who knew that their podcast was going to become like the big hit that it has been. And, you know, now I've been on, I think, four times plus a cameo and a fifth. And uh, so all of a sudden we started getting more people reaching out, interested in investing with us because they heard the podcast. And I'm like, wow, that's fascinating. And I figured it out. You know, everybody now says like, oh, I'm going to go listen to all the Bigger Pockets podcasts. So they start at number one and they go one, two, three. Oh, this Brian guy, I, this is boring. I've never listened to another one of these podcasts and they, they stop listening. But because I was on the third one, like everybody's heard it. So a lot of people reach out. And, and really, if I were to trace back, you know, we've raised hundreds of millions of dollars from investors. Uh, we have 1,500 investors in our network. And I would be shocked if three quarters of them couldn't somehow be traced back on a family tree to bigger pockets somehow. Like either they came from there or knew somebody that did or referred by somebody who did. And uh, that's why I spent that much time on it. And, and that's really was a catalyst to my success as opposed to a distraction from it. And I think that's just such an important point for folks out there. Just, you know, having a voice, having content, being consistent with it, and also being, you know, a go-giver, right? Because, I mean, you said initially you just did it more so to, to help people and answer questions, and then you were trying to do the right thing. And then, you know, altruistically, it started to come back to you, and you're like, oh, man, here's some investors. This is, this is something that can turn into a system that actually help escalate our business. So, <clears throat> 
so I know you, t- you mentioned, you know, hey, people would talk to you before about, hey, you should write a book. So where did the idea from writing the book come from? And, and what was that process like actually writing a book? Well, it was, it was an evolution for sure, because, you know, uh, my wife had been telling me for years I should write a book. And I'm like, you know, for, for years I put it off. I'm like, no, you know, I either didn't have enough time or, you know, well, geez, when we were doing 100 houses a year, I'd run a 50 miles an hour with my hair on fire all day long. So there was no way that was going to happen. I had investors that reached out to me and said, you should write a book. You know, I had one of our investors wrote me this long email about like, here's two books you could write. One would be about real estate and another is about your journey. He's like, you have two books in you. And I'm like, you know what, this guy's right. And uh, I was over on Maui. Uh, you know, I stay there during the winters pretty frequently. You know, we have a place there. And, and uh, uh, I was there and uh, Brandon Turner moved there, like while I was there. And so like a few days after he was there, he's, he's like, hey, you know, I'm just moving to Maui. You know, we should get together. I'm like, okay. So we were just kind of hanging out on front street in Lahaina, just kind of cruising through the shops. And, and I was like, man, you, you, have you written all these books? Where in the hell do you find the time to do that? And he's like, this is what I do. And he lays out like, like I do blah, 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 blah. I'm like, oh, I could do that. I'm like, I'm like, but I don't even know what I would write about. And he's like, you know, he gave me, he's like, you know, well, what do you need more than anything else in this business? I'm like, I don't know. Our business thrives on capital. We need investors. He's like, well, then teach people how to be investors. I'm like, duh, what a dumb idea. How can I not have thought of that? And I started researching and I'm like, nobody's really done this. Nobody's taught investors, passive investors, how to properly passively invest. And so at first I thought, you know, well, that's, that's not a book I should write. A passive investor should write that, you know? But the more I thought about it, I said, you know what? I'm the exact right person to write it because the, the person to educate a passive investor is somebody that knows all the tricks that go on behind the scenes, all the way that you could fool someone and expose all of that and bring that out into the front so that people could see exactly where the skeletons are in the closet to make sure they don't make a mistake. And my motivation behind that was a friend of mine who literally lost her entire life savings investing in a syndication with the wrong sponsor who turned out to be a crook. He's now in prison and she's now driving for a rideshare service just to put food on the table. And she would have been set for life if she had not made that mistake. And I thought if I could just save one person from making that mistake, uh, then writing a book will have been worth it. So I started sitting down and started typing it all out. And uh, it took me nine months uh, to crank that thing out. I didn't realize it was going to be 350 pages. It really is almost two books in one. Uh, but uh, anyway, I took basically everything I know and put it on paper. So I'm done. I'm, that's it. That's all you get from me. <laughs> I mean, and, and I think that's such an important point because like you said, most the majority of texts and education out there is around the operator side, right? You know, it's like, hey, this is how you network with brokers. This is how you finance a deal. This is how you do these other things. And I know, you know, the, the passive investing side is starting to catch up a little bit, but it's still greatly lacking. And that's one of the biggest concerns I have just in networking and talking to folks is, is, you know, the majority of investors out there are, are fairly naive still, right, to, to all the different circumstances. And that's why I think the book is so important, because just even within debt, right, there's so many questions, <laughs> you know, there's so many questions to know the the area, the demographics, and then that's just, you know, the deal. But I mean, obviously, you want to start with the sponsor, first and foremost, other than ever, anything. And so what, I guess, what would be the number one thing you would say for an LP or for a past investor looking to invest with an operator? What would be just I know high level, but what would be one thing that you'd say, hey, this is kind of the first and foremost, you need to make sure that this is on with, you know, before you start to invest with them? Well, it's their moral character. That's first and foremost, all of it. It's the moral character. And, you know, I want to touch on something because you said something there that was really interesting. You said there's a lot of books out there on teaching people how to be an operator and how to buy real estate and all that kind of stuff. If you want to make money writing a book, you put out a book on how to become wealthy quickly or how to become an instant millionaire or how to get rich quick or how to buy real estate with no money down. That's how you make a lot of money writing a book. I, I you know, I wasn't motivated by making money off. The, I don't, I'm not making anything off this book. You know, it's like it had, that had nothing to do with it. For me, it was more about investors were calling me and asking me questions. And I was realizing they weren't asking the right questions. They were asking all the wrong stuff that doesn't matter. It's like, why are you asking that? Don't, you're wasting your time with that question. So I realized that people didn't know the right questions to answer. And that was part of the motivation for writing this specific book. Because I'm like, okay, investors don't know what they don't know. Let me educate them. And believe me, this is not a moneymaker because it's a limited audience. There's not a lot of people 
who want to know this kind of stuff. So, so first and foremost, you know, the book was really about helping people more so than it was about making any money. That's why you see so many books in the other category and none written on how to be a passive investor. Plus being a passive investor, number one is like kind of a boring topic, you know, and, and two, it's difficult to articulate to someone how exactly they need to uh, identify sponsors worthy of their life savings. And I, I, I preach that this is somewhat like a marriage, right? Um, you don't wake up in the morning and say, hmm, I'm single. I'm going to go out and go get married today. It doesn't work like that. You know, instead you, you go out and you, you meet people and you find people that maybe you're attracted to and then you'd strike up a conversation and then you realize what kind of a person they are and whether they're compatible with you and whether or not you feel that, you know, that they're, uh, you know, that they're, uh, uh, they have good character and all those things before you go get married. And, and investing with a sponsor is similar to that process. You have to come to know how the person thinks, uh, what their character is like, uh, what kind of investments they make, what, what's their investing philosophy? You know, are they really aggressive or are they really conservative? Does that match your views? Um, you know, there's just a lot of different kind of, I'd call them, you know, quote unquote, touchy-feely elements to this business. It's not all just about spreadsheets and IRRs and cash on cash return because all those numbers could be zero with the wrong person. I think that's such a tremendous point. And just kind of last thing to build off that before we wrap up is around how easy it's getting though for people to kind of, kind of to your point, right? You know how you need to kind of get that touchy feely and those vibes and, and really build that relationship and make sure that that, because moral character is difficult to pull out of somebody in one or two conversations, right? The likelihood is that individual is probably pretty good at, you know, getting the, you know, getting the investor to think that, Hey, you know, I'm the right person to invest with, right? They, they, they're good at getting that individual to feel comfortable with them. And so I think that's one of my concerns overall, just in general to LPs out there is it's getting really easy. You just get an email in your inbox. Hey, new offering out there, you know, click here for your soft commit and Hey, boom, here's the PPM, wire your funds and boom, you're done. And to your point around the marriage, I mean, it's, you know, I think it's naive to expect anything less than a five-year hold right now, right? You know, I mean, of course it could happen, but I think if you're assuming anything like that, that, that could be challenging and it could go to 10 years or as you said, I mean, it could go all the way to zero. And I just think that's the, I think people need to make sure they're, they're comfortable with those risk factors. The likelihood of them happening, you know, probably not, but could it happen? And could you be the one, you know, you don't want to be that 1% of deals that go south. So I just think that's such a tremendous point that you made for sure. Yeah. And you know, one of the things you said there about, you know, the hold period and that sort of stuff is, you know, a lot of newer passive investors might not understand how all of those nuances interact with one another and, the, and how hold period impacts uh, internal rate of return and how uh, it impacts uh, equity multiples or what an equity multiple even is. Uh, you know, all of those different things and, and, you know, what should they be looking for and what's kind of normal in the industry and what are typical hold periods and what are typical rates of return and what seems reasonable and how do I know if the rate of return they're promising is actually going to happen or not? What kind of flags can I look for? And, you know, people didn't know any of that stuff. And so, you know, if, if I could educate them a little bit on kind of what to look for and, you know, what's important and what's not important, that'll help people avoid some of the mistakes that, they otherwise would make uh, in, in those things. As I said before, uh, I definitely would recommend anyone to pick it up because uh, it does take a while. It takes a while to digest and get through it all. But uh, man, it is extremely detailed and, and you know, it's, it's really helped me in vetting deals, uh, you know, either actively and, and as a passive. So, all right, Brian, well, we're going to wrap up with the contrarian three pack. So what would you say is the most contrarian investment that you've made? I think foreclosures was, was probably the most contrarian investment because when, when uh, and, and it's the most of it, I've done 650 or 700 or 650 house flips and, you know, another hundred and something rentals. Uh, but the most, the majority of those, probably 500 of those were in the period of 2008 through 2011. And during that time, real estate was, you know, values were dropping and people were saying like, oh, real estate is scary and, you know, home prices are falling and they're going to fall even more. And, uh, you know, that was very contrarian to be like all in and going long even on real estate at that particular time. I mean, remember, this was the great financial collapse. I had a guy came up to me at a conference 
And uh, we were just starting to make the shift into buy and hold. We were doing a lot of flips. Now we were going to do buy and hold. We were looking to raise some money for that strategy. You know, we wanted to buy about $100 million worth of houses. And my thesis was, I said, these homes are going to double in value in five years. And, and, and people were like, that'll never happen. You're crazy. And I had a guy came up to me at a conference and he goes, you are so wrong. He said, this is the worst time to be buying houses to hold. Home prices are falling. You should be flipping. That's the only strategy that works right now. Blah, blah, blah. And went on and on and on. I'm like, thanks for your advice. I appreciate that. And he walked off. And, you know, I did exactly as I said. We started buying houses to rent out. Unfortunately, we couldn't raise enough money because everybody else thought the way he did. Uh, we could only raise enough money to buy $15 million worth of houses. But five years later, uh, they didn't double in value like I had predicted. They doubled in a half and we sold them for $45 million. So uh, that was very contrarian, but also very right. Yeah, no, that's an outstanding story. So I know we've talked a lot about the real estate, the business, your journey, but what's your favorite thing to do outside of real estate and business and all this, uh, you know, tactical stuff? Uh, flying airplanes is about the only thing I do if I'm not doing real estate. Uh, that's that's kind of my passion. Went out and took the plane out last night and flew around at night a little bit. And uh, uh, that's that's my favorite thing to do is, uh, is eat out and fly. Can you fly yourself all the way to Hawaii or does your, can your plane make it that far? Or do you I can make it about a third of the way there and I'd have to swim the other two thirds. All right. Probably not worth the effort then. <laughs> yeah, but probably not. <laughs> all right. Well, last question. Um, so outside of all of this, what, what does offer you the most fulfillment in life? Uh, I think to me, it's, uh, uh, it's the life I've created at home and it's the, the things that I've been able to see uh, my investors benefit from. Uh, you know, it's like back when I started that first fund with all the cops from the department investing in my fund with $5,000 investment minimums. I mean, I had guys that gave me their kids' college money. That's what they did. They, they had 5000 saved up for my kid for college. I'll invest it with you. And they did. And, you know, then uh, when their kid was old enough to go to college, uh, they're like, Hey, you know, it's time for me to withdraw. So we had withdrawal options and that was the, that, and their whole, their kid was full college paid for off of the uh, profits that I was able to generate through that fund and, you know, trips around the world and just stuff that people did from the money they made from the efforts that I was, uh, putting out, uh, was very fulfilling to me to be able to make a difference for people in their life. That's extremely powerful. And, you know, that's why I always like to dig on that because I mean, obviously the money is great and that's, you know, a big portion of why we do a lot of this, but at the end of the day, what's the output and, you know, what do we leverage the money as a tool for to, to have as an outcome in our lives? So, well, Brian, this has been a beyond outstanding conversation. I really appreciate the time. What's the best way that the listeners can get in touch with you out there? Well, the easiest way is always ask a question on bigger pockets. Uh, it's funny. I, I did a podcast recording earlier today with another guy and he goes, Hey, you just answered a question for me on BP last night. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, ask questions on bigger pockets. You never know if I might chime in with an answer. You can always find me around hanging out around there. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at investor Brian Burke. You can find me on our website, cracks It's P R A X cap.com accredited investors can go to investwithpraxis.com and check out the webinar that you watched and learn about our most recent offering as well uh, and of course uh, you know biggerpockets.com forward slash syndication book uh, to check out the hands-off investor well brian thank you again so much enjoy uh, your time in the luau's uh, through the through the holidays and uh, look forward to talking to you again soon thanks man appreciate it all right until next time live fulfilled Thank you for listening to Contrarian Cashflow. I would greatly appreciate it if you left an honest review, hit subscribe so you never miss an episode, and share with someone you feel would find value. Until next time, think different, earn different, live fulfilled.